You found us. You found Rocket Fuel, the youth marketing and youth culture podcast, where we interview somebody who's affected youth marketing and youth culture. I'm James, James Erskine. I'm the presenter of Rocket Fuel, and I'm also lucky enough to work for Rocket, the business behind Rocket Fuel. We're a youth content and youth marketing business. We are a bit discombobulated. One of our guests has got got COVID, so was unable to be interviewed, and we wish them the very best of health. So this week we are guestless, for which we apologise. But what we thought we'd do, because we know the audience for this podcast is growing all the time, is take you back to a previous episode. So we're going to go all the way back to November 2019, when we spoke to Rory Sutherland, who's the vice chairman of Ogilvy, and also an awesome author. Hear me try to control with no great success, the brilliance Rory Sutherland. I first got to know about this week's guest when I would steal some copies of my father's edition of The Spectator magazine, because he's a columnist in that. But don't hold that against him. He uh, also works for Ogilvy, a big communications and advertising business. And he really um, spoke to me again with his most recent book. It's called Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Every conversation that I've had in this series has been exciting for me, but this one was really good because I'm a huge fan of Rory's work. But also, he's like a roller coaster. I mean, you just wind him up and watch him go. So this this week's edition has not got the similar structure as previous editions, just because Rory does not stop talking. But the good news is, every single bit of it is really, really interesting. Our conversation covers everything from remote working to obvious uh, rivalries with Coca-Cola. And he has a really, really good line in terms of staying curious and kind of questioning normal thinking. Have a listen. Let me know what you think. We have a really, really good long chat and then we get to find out what is Rory Sutherland's rocket fuel. So first thing is to say, Rory Sutherland, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Real uh, joy to be on. Thank you very much. No worries. So let's start with some questions around you. Um, tell us about your journey and, and how you've ended up where you've ended up at Ogilvy. Uh, it's now, what, 30 years, uh, 31 years, in fact, this year, astoundingly. So I joined in September 1988. Uh, I joined as a graduate trainee um, at what was then Ogilvy and May the Direct. And... Um, uh, so I've done, I suppose, about five different jobs since then, at least. Um, uh, very interestingly, I, I decided I wanted to work in advertising on leaving university. I spent one year training as a teacher and decided that I didn't want to go straight into teaching after university because <clears throat> essentially I did my practice teaching and suddenly I had a panic attack and I realized that if I got a teaching job straight after leaving university... I'd spend my entire life kind of in educational institutions, which seemed ridiculous. Uh, so um, I applied to a variety of ad agencies, and um, I think I got second interviews, um, Saatchi's, perhaps one other. My final job, the only one I, got, I was actually offered a job by, was Ogilvy and Mather Direct. Now, funnily enough, having been through the interview to Ogilvy and Mather Direct, I decided strangely, I suppose, quite presciently, uh, that I really wanted to work in direct marketing if possible because the whole business of it being measurable, 
you know, I'm a bit of a nerd in yeah. a sense. And so the idea of doing advertising where you could actually measure, compare, and contrast different creative approaches struck me as fascinating. Now, what I didn't really realize at the time was this was pretty much the best place in the world to do it because there was an extraordinary collection of talent at the agency of that time, Drayton Bird in particular. And um, so it was, um, uh, uh, that was, you know, looking back on it, uh, you know, I was only offered one job, but it was the job I really, really wanted. <laughs> and it was an incredibly fortunate place in which to start, too. I've read somewhere that, that perhaps they didn't think they'd got the best graduate when they employed you, first of all. It took you a while to find your feet. Is that a fair assumption? Oh, no, no, that's very <laughs> fair. I was, you know, I mean, I, I've been variously described. And slightly unfairly, I think, is the you know the worst um, the the worst graduate they ever hired, right? Um, and uh, you know the worst account man they ever had. <laughs> Not quite true. I, I mean, in fairness, I mean, you know, uh, there were parts of the job I was uh, uh, I was appalling at. The organisational part of the job I was absolutely terrible at. And famously, this is true, by the way. There are a few apocryphal stories about my early account handling attempts, which are slightly exaggerated. Uh, but it is absolutely true that I was booked on a time management course as a remedial action and then got the date wrong. Um, that really did happen. <laughs> That's a great story. Well done. Um, so what are the qualities when you're in the workplace that you look for in people around you? Uh, oh, curiosity. It, it really is that simple. I, I, I think one of the reasons I think that I liked direct marketing so much was that because your work actually generated results and you had to explain why one thing worked better than another and, and try and find out reasons why this might be. Uh, so at the time, I suppose, you know, there was, I mean, these names may or may be more or, or less familiar, but working with, say, Randy Hanfelder, that was uh, Drayton himself, uh, Steve Harrison, I, had, I ended up with an art director called Mike Sim. There was an extraordinary um, sort of collection of, talent in one place at one time, which made it an absolutely brilliant place to start your working career. Not, not to mention, I mean, David Ogilvy always recommended that a creative, before being a creative, should spend four or five years in direct marketing simply for that reason. You know, direct marketing taught you very, very quickly. This is, of course, before digital and before programmatic and everything else. Uh, it, it, um, uh, it, it, it taught you what worked and what didn't. And that, that was, if you like, um, a very, very early introduction to behavioral science and behavioral economics, because uh, you were in the perfect place to understand that the standard rationalist theories of why people behave the way they do and what incentives they respond to um, if you were working in direct marketing, you very, very quickly learned that these assumptions weren't true. And from the early days, me and a few friends said, look, actually, there should be a whole new science about this. And it was, I guess, 10, 15 years before, uh, uh, before behavioral economics came along. But the extraordinary discoveries we made, I'll give you an example, okay? Mm. Um, if you ever wrote a letter, for example, offering someone a chance to apply for the American Express card, You'd learned uh, from long experience in direct marketing that you'd end the letter with apply before date. And you'd give people a deadline two weeks in advance before which they had to apply to the American Express card in yeah. the letter. Now, in truth, if anybody wrote in 
um, you know, uh, six months later or two years later, you obviously weren't going to turn down a sale. In a sense, the whole thing was a nonsense. It was kind of a charade. Yeah. But by making the offer a limited-time offer, direct marketers had long learned that actually uh, that overcomes inertia, scarcity, I suppose we'd call it. Uh, you know, this was the precursor to only three seats left at this price. Sure. That you, you, you got far more people applying for the card if you created a kind of artificial deadline than if you ended the letter by saying, feel free to apply whenever it suits you. And in terms of your work, it's Ogilvy is the day job, then you're a columnist with The Spectator, and of course you've, you've written some books as well, Alchemy being the most recent. Um, is, is that still broadly correct? Yes, that's true, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I, I must say, actually, I recommend, even though... You know, at the weekend when I've got to write a Spectator article, and it's nearly always the weekend, you know, I sometimes curse the fact that I can't just take the whole weekend off. Mm. Um, I do recommend having more than one job yeah. in a funny kind of way because I think it's a bit like stereo. Uh, it gives you an extra dimension on what you're doing with your life. And um, so, you know, I, I think the whole business of essentially having one small side hustle or extra string to your bow uh, is just, uh, I mean, in the case of journalism, it, it's almost essential that you have some other job because journalism is now so badly paid uh, compared with 20 or 30 years ago that it's pretty difficult surviving uh, as a columnist alone. But um, I also recommend it for completely different reasons, that having, um, uh, you know, having more than one uh, area to, on which to focus your attention uh, somehow gives you a kind of breadth, uh, which um, I, only dis- I only discovered by accident. You've also said in the past, be really good at two things as opposed to be outstanding I, at uh, one. <laughs> uh, that actually, I mean, I'm quite serious about this. Yeah. It's, very, very, it's a very interesting question. I was talking to someone on a podcast uh, a few weeks ago who was in Chicago. And in a funny kind of way, <coughs> I jokingly said, in a sense, if you want to have a reasonably pleasant life, you're, you, it makes much more sense to live in Chicago than to live in New York. <laughs> and um, in a way, the reason for that is that uh, the being at the very, very top of a single thing, New York is full of people. In Chicago, it's a very competitive city, I'm sure, but people are competing for some practical, realistic end. You know, they want, you know, they want to make more money so they can have a nicer house, OK? Yeah. My joke is that in the most competitive place in the world, New York, to be honest, it will attract the hyper-obsessively, insanely competitive. And you'll end up competing with people who are really just competing for the sake of it. Yeah. And I've always said, you know, if you, um, there's an argument that you should always pursue number two, number three, number four, for the simple reason that at the very, very top, the... Um, uh, you're competing with people who, to be honest, will compete even when there's no purpose to the competition. I also make the recommendation that uh, trying to be the best at a thing in which lots and lots of people are also trying to be best at, the best tennis player in the world, statistically speaking, you're going to fail. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, the brutal truth is there may be people who just want it more than you do. There may be people who want it more than is healthy. Um, simple fortune, you know, a mixture of genetics and timing, make it extraordinarily unlikely that you're ever going to be the best tennis player in the world. But if you combine two related things, 
So you're, you know, in the top decile or the top 5% of one thing and in the top 5% of another thing, okay? Yeah. Now, by combining those two things, the odds that there are loads and loads of people competing at those two absolute same things is much, much smaller. And therefore, um, actually, the chance that you can develop a completely unique um, capability is much higher. So, you know, if you are someone who knows a huge amount about crime and you know a huge amount about insects, right, you're now a forensic um, entomologist, (laughs) right? And you might be the world's best forensic entomologist. Trying to be the the world's best forensic scientist or trying to be the world's best entomologist is a much, much tougher ask than finding something in the intersection of the two skills. Of course. Got it. <laughs> I want to go back, just while we're talking kind of work, to a relatively recent Wikiman column that I think are um, in from The Spectator that I think our listeners would, would love to kind of get the top line from. And that was just your thoughts on the future of flexible working. Um, did you just want to bring to life some of those themes? Because I found that piece fascinating. Funnily enough, there's another one that's coming up, well, tomorrow. Okay. Or, t- or today, if you get your copy very early. Right. Uh, which is that there's a bill by Helen Waitley, who's the MP for Faversham, which I think is a very intelligent nudge bill. And it makes every advertised job, by default, offer the possibility of working flexibly, unless the employer, in other words, the advertiser, can state a good reason why the job can't be done flexibly. So it's a classic behavioural economics case. She's a very, very shrewd um, uh, person, MP, with a very good understanding of behavioural science. It essentially is, is a business of changing the default. At the moment, jobs are non-flexible unless by default someone decides to make them flexible. This simply just flips the norm. It flips it to 180 degrees. So a job will be flexible unless the employer decides otherwise specifically and has reason to um, decide that. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, the reason I think this is really important is that there's a great um, phrase which is occasionally used among IT specialists and in things like agile. Um, yep. Okay, and the phrase is paving the cow paths. Yeah. And paving the cow paths happens, it, it's meant as a criticism, um, when you essentially just add a layer of technology to an existing process without questioning whether the introduction of technology allows you to reinvent the process. And so the reason, the, the, um, if you like, the etymology of um, paving the, how, the cow paths comes from the city of Boston, where supposedly the city fathers, when they paved the roads, didn't think of whether there was a better way of laying out the roads or whether maybe you needed a grid system or uh, you know, a new network of roads. They basically just slapped cobblestones down on top of the existing random paths that have been formed by cattle drovers. And they didn't rethink the road network. They just upgraded it from mud to cobblestone. And I think that to a great extent we've done this with technology, that we've actually uh, overlaid, overlaid technology on existing patterns of work behavior without really rethinking them. I mean, one question I asked recently is, why, does, why when you have a video conference does it tend to last an hour? Yeah, completely. Okay, and I said, and people said, well, what do you mean? I mean, you know, surely they last as long as they need to. I said, no, no, no. A video conference really lasts an hour because a meeting lasts an hour. Mm-hmm. And in fairness, a meeting often lasts an hour because if someone had travelled to it 
or if a lot of people had to schlep from one building to another, okay, it was pretty irritating if you travelled to something and it only lasted five minutes. Yeah. But in a video conference, that sunk cost in terms of travel doesn't exist, and there's no reason why you can't have lots of little five- to ten-minute video calls. I couldn't agree. The reason we don't is we just go, this is like a digital meeting, so it's going to last as long as a meeting. Yeah. And my contention is that we've taken uh, pre-existing patterns of behaviour. I mean, one thing that drives me nuts is the fact that people go into the office on a busy train and then spend the first hour of the day doing emails. Mm. Okay, my argument is, look, the screen on which you're doing the email would be no different if you were at home on a later train, Mm. assuming you had some sort of connectivity. Um, And to be honest, you know, I'm not sure what you're doing in the office, which is an open plan space designed for collaboration. What on earth are you doing just sitting, staring at a screen anyway? Yeah. And so um, I'm I'm a big fan of flexible working, partly because work now, I think, work always involves lots and lots of different modes. Uh, Some of those modes are probably better done in a cafe, on a moving train, at home, uh, wherever you find it best. They're certainly not necessarily done in an open plan office. Why not use your time in the office to talk to people and to do the things that you can only do face to face and then move the things that are location independent, which technology has newly made location independent, move those things to late in the evening. That's what you want to do. Makes makes no difference to me. And so the fact that we haven't rethought the pattern of work fundamentally uh, in response to uh, the coming of... uh, an extraordinary concatenation of communication technologies just strikes me as a missed opportunity. Um, And I also think, by the way, as a creative person, I think that uh, occasional changes of scene and changes of mode are in any case just beneficial. Sure. Uh, You know, sometimes if you want to have an idea, um, you're much more likely to have it, uh, you know, in a different place. And I don't, I don't know about you, if you look back on your career as a creative person, um, it's surprising, actually, how many of your best ideas haven't happened to you while you're sitting at a desk. Oh, completely. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And then, and then in addition, there's the kind of get-out-there argument I have, which is that uh, we live in an unrealistic enough weird bubble world in London to begin with. Yep. And um, in advertising, you've—I've heard you speak on that before as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's worth remembering that the advertise—the the culture of the advertising industry is hugely unrepresentative. Um, I mean, a lot of talk, quite rightly, is about the gender aspect, uh, for example, uh, you know, or indeed the sort of social eth- aspect or the ethnic aspect. Uh, just as potent, by the way, the age group in which you you, you sit is typically absurdly narrow. In London, it's possible to spend most of your life hanging out with people who are within three years of age of you. You know, it's very interesting once you move out of London, by the way, once you, once you move outside the M25, you notice that your, you know, your social contacts have a much wider age range, for yeah. instance. And, um, uh, it, and also, the, the very nature of advertising makes it uh, a highly unrepresentative, self-selecting group of people to begin with. Principally, my argument is that what we've done with technology, which seems to be a fundamental waste, is we've essentially taken 1980s working patterns, uh, what time you turn up at work. Uh, and bear in mind, in the late 80s, when you left the office, there was an awful lot of stuff you could only do at the office. Yeah. Um, that has completely changed. So my argument is, well, if you are in the office, dedicate your your time to those things which are either geographically dependent or 
dependent on face-to-face contact and um, start being behaving more flexibly in other ways. If you can't do this with your staff, you don't trust them enough. You know, if you're the kind of person who basically feels incapable of running anything unless you can actually keep an eye on people every second of the day, um, really, you've got the wrong staff. So, Rory, section two of this podcast is often about people's work and their their business and their roles. I want to really focus on alchemy for this part, for the, certainly for the beginning, Brit, just to bring to life some of the themes, because I've, I've recommended it to most people that I see and talk to. I've heard you speak about this quite a lot. Um, and that is your theory that the opposite of a good idea could be another good idea. And I've heard you talk about Coca-Cola and Red Bull. Yeah, no, I mean, at the very simplest, I mean, what behavioural economics teaches us is that there is a logic to human behaviour which isn't necessarily the conventional utility-maximising logic of economics. And I'd take it even further, which a lot of people, I think, I'm not alone in saying this, nor by any means the first person to say it, the very attempt to try and model human behaviour as though it were Newtonian physics. Uh, is a fundamental category mistake. Um, If you think about it for evolutionary reasons, if we were really that predictable, um, uh, you know, if we behaved in an extraordinarily uniform and predictable way, uh, anything would have basically been uh, predated to death. (laughs) So, you know, the very fact that our behaviour is highly sensitised to context and to some degree unpredictable... Uh, It's probably an evolutionary necessity to begin with. But then there's the fact that what we're operating in is a complex and indeed sometimes messy and chaotic, uncertain world where we had imperfect information. Um, And in such a world, by the way, in, in understanding complex systems, the idea that there's a single right answer, which is something we we crave when we try and make what we do look scientific because that's true in physics and that's true in maths you know a tractable problem has a single correct answer and anything else is wrong and the opposite of that right answer is spectacularly wrong (laughs) um that's basically true in you know newtonian physics in psychology it's completely wrong in psychology weirdly um the same thing depending on context or storytelling Uh, or on circumstances, or on presentation, the same thing can be good or bad, dependent not on its objective properties, but on the mental mindset we bring to it. Just to give give you an earlier example before I mention Red Bull, Mm. um, you know, those of you in in the UK might remember the 80s, 90s. Uh, In Soho, in Chinatown for many years, there was a restaurant called Wong Ki, which made a fantastic business out of being basically the rudest restaurant in London. Now, normally, being rude is a bad thing in a restaurant. You want staff to be polite, friendly, welcoming, and so forth. Sometimes, interestingly, the opposite of a good idea can also be a good idea. If the restaurant's famous for being rude... Um, then weirdly, if you go to a restaurant in the expectation of the staff being rude, then it doesn't mean quite the same thing. It always interests me, by the way, if you read a TripAdvisor review which says the food's great, the service is terrible, Mm. okay, and you go along and sure enough, the food's great and the service is terrible, strangely, you have a much better experience than you would have had if you hadn't expected the terrible service. 
of course, yeah. And there are a few interesting things going on there. One of them is very simply that if you don't expect terrible service, but you get it, you tend to take it as a personal affront. So you tend to assume they're being lovely and polite to everybody else, that it's just me they've singled out for this treatment. And so you take that with a far greater degree of sensitivity than if you think the staff are rude to everybody indiscriminately. Also, you tend to reframe the bad service as the price you pay for the good food. So under that circumstance, you probably imposed a different narrative where you go, well, you know, the staff are pretty rude, but they can afford to be because the food's so great, as it were. Yeah. Whereas if, you, if, you, if you're exposed to bad service unawares with no forewarning, uh, you, you'll tend to interpret it, as I said, of, you know, what a totally rubbish restaurant. We've been treated abominably. And so all these things, you can flip a story and you can do this magical, literally alchemical thing of turning a weakness into a strength. Now, if you think about it, some of the greatest advertising, uh, Lemon, uh, Think Small, for example, does exactly this. So if you take, you know, I mean, it has to be every, in everybody's top ten, uh, Avis, uh, we're number two in rental cars, so we try harder. Yeah. If you remember the time at which that went out, 1960s, and you wanted to be number one in rental cars because the biggest player was presumed to be the best rental car company. And you take this thing, we're number two in rental cars, weakness. In other words, natural assumption. It means you're not really as good as Hertz. You don't have any, any locations as Hertz. You're more likely to run out of cars than Hertz. And then you add these four words, so we try harder. And you completely reframe the story so that what was a weakness becomes a strength. Yeah. And the fact is that in Newtonian physics, okay, you can't do this. You know, it's like... Um, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, energy can either be created or destroyed. In conventional economics, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Again, in attempting to be a science, it's set out to be a magic-free science where you can't create value out of nowhere. But in psychology, of course, you can create value out of nowhere, tell a different story, and the same thing which was a pain in the arse five minutes ago actually becomes a virtue. You And... and... Jumping back to Red Bull, you actually say that it shouldn't have been a success. If you look no, at no, all, no, the... not, not quite. Okay. I'm saying that actually qualities in a different. Oh, okay, I'll, let me reframe this. Okay, <laughs> so I'll start off with a little preamble. Yeah, I mean, certainly a, a logical person setting out to sell a soft drink would not have done this. You're, yeah. you're sitting down, okay, and you go, "We want to compete with Coke." What does conventional logic tell us would make for a more successful drink than Coke? Well, it would taste nicer than Coke, it would cost less than Coke, and it would come in a really big can, so people got great value for money. And the conventional economics wouldn't quibble with any of those three. Now, if you look at Red Bull, which is pretty much the most successful attempt to compete with Coke, the most successful attempt not quite to dethrone Coke, I'll explain why in a second, but to compete on the shelf, okay? Now, three things. It costs a fortune, it comes in a tiny can, and it tastes kind of disgusting. <laughs> so those three logical things you'd assume have all been violated. But I think, here's the thing, okay, Red Bull, as it was accidentally or intentionally marketed, certainly now as it's deliberately marketed, isn't really a drink. It's a placebo. Uh, it's, it's a drug and a placebo. Yeah. And the three things that make it a very bad drink make it a very good placebo. First of all, me medical things aren't supposed to be tasty. 
you know, anything psychoactive, psychotropic, anything with strong medicinal powers is going to taste weird. Just as anything you put on your skin is supposed to sting. Mm. Someone pointed me to this uh, piece, I think, in um, a work on Jerry de la Femina, where for years Savlon had perfected this uh, antiseptic ointment, which didn't sting because it didn't contain alcohol. And they finally came to the realization, no, 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 people want it to sting because the sting is how you believe it's working. And in the same way with anything which claims to have to give you wings, to have medicinal or psychoactive powers, the weird taste isn't a weakness. It's actually a function. Yeah. It's a benefit. Second thing is the fact that it comes in a tiny can and says this is amazingly potent. We actually have to give it to you in a limited dose because <laughs> otherwise you'll go do lally. Yeah. Okay. And of course, the fact that it's expensive is also potent. Mm. There's a lot of evidence that placebos are much more effective if you tell people they cost a lot of money. And of course, if you think about bogus medicine, I'm not saying that Red Bull's bogus. It contains some active ingredients, by the way. Of course. But if you think about all medicine where there's a heck of a lot of psychology involved, um, for example, rhinoceros horn, okay? The belief in the efficacy of rhinoceros horn uh, for its medical properties is partly driven and made more potent by its rarity. You know, no one will ever, I think, come up with a successful replacement where they claim that ground-up IKEA furniture has miraculous healing powers <laughs> because it just seems less plausible than to say that this incredibly rare ingredient is... Uh, essentially, you know, the source of your recovery. Yeah. And so it manages to do all three of these. Now, in a carbonated beverage, uh, that's a terrible thing, arguably. You know, uh, you know. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting for a second that Fanta or Tango can start to compete more effectively by making the drink taste foul. Yeah. But in something that <laughs> claims to have medicinal powers, and which, of course, has the additional marketing privilege of... Uh, now, I mean, I can't believe this. They don't. I, if I'm right, they card my kids when they buy Red Bull. My daughter, who's eight, who's um, is 18, drove to a petrol station in a car, filled up with petrol, paid with a credit card, and then tried to ban a can, can of Red Bull. And they asked to see her driving license. <laughs> now, of course, to be absolutely honest, if you want a drink to appeal to 15-year-olds, what better quality can you give it than actually banning it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know there's a certain degree of inconvenience. I'm sure that sales dropped off in a way. But the magic you actually accord to a drink by saying you can only buy this above a certain age, I mean, what a gift in mm. some respects. And, of course, the fact that when Red Bull launched, there were rumours that it was going to be banned. Yes. And, you know, because it contains too much of something. Yeah. You know, I mean, what a fantastic uh, launch campaign you've got, all done at the expense of health nutters in the public sector. <laughs> Can we touch on one other thing that I loved in the book that was about how businesses need to stop listening to what people say but start finding out what people are feeling? And you quoted David Ogilvie, the trouble with market research is that people don't think what they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. Now, I did caveat in the book by saying, weirdly, there's no evidence that David Ogilvie ever said that. Oh, OK. <laughs> uh, he was a market researcher, so it's worth caveating that with David and I, mm. for separate, perhaps for separate reasons, and, and, um, but uh, we are by no means hostile to the idea of market research. What I think every good marketing person would be hostile to is the idea of taking it literally. OK. And if you take it literally, that rests on the assumption... Um, and in all these things, by the way, um, in the way we behave and respond to stimuli and in the way in which we describe our reaction to stimuli, 
the ur-science here isn't behavioural economics, it's evolutionary psychology, deep down, OK? Yeah. Um, in all these things, taking market research literally is based on the assumption that people have full, in accurate, introspective access to the way in which factual information and the real-world environment affect their behaviour. So, in other words, you have enough uh, capacity to interrogate your own thought processes that you can deliver a completely accurate and full explanation of, A, why it was you acted the way you did when you bought X, and B, under what conditions you would buy Y. And it's a completely unsafe assumption. Because, again, there's an evolutionary reason for this. Uh, most of the time, we don't do uh, why, what we do for the reasons we necessarily think we do it. And therefore, even allowing for people always telling the truth, okay, uh, the reason we can't tell the full truth about why we do something and under what circumstances we might do something else is simply because we don't know. Because it's not in our evolutionary to our evolutionary advantage to have uh, the complete powers of, um, uh, of, of self-understanding and introspection. And so my contention here is that uh, there's a real why which often drives behavior, even though everybody thinks the reason for the behavior is something else. And typically, what we seem to do is, once we've come up with the most rational-sounding reason for doing X, we accept that that's the real reason. And that is highly dangerous, because the very fact that there's a rational explanation for something doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. And we tend to think it is. We go, this is the most rational reason why people should do this. Ergo, this is the real reason. And I tend to take almost the opposite view, which is the very fact that it's the most rational reason may will very well mean that it's completely misleading. Uh, J.P. Morgan supposedly said, there, you know, there are two reasons why any man does something, which is a good reason and the real reason. <laughs> and that, that, that is, uh, I mean, it's not universally true, by the way. I, I, one of the things I'm not saying is that people can never give an accurate reflection of why they do something. That would be weird. Yeah. Okay. But I'm simply saying that, as with, say, toothpaste, the official reason is all about dental health. Mm. If you look at when people cl clean their teeth, uh, which tends to be first thing in the morning before they go on a date, before they go to the office, for example, it looks as though anxiety about bad breath and social anxiety, add to that, by the way, the fact that nearly all toothpaste is flavoured with mint, mm. which has nothing to do with actual dental health. Mm. Okay, and I think we can reasonably assume that the deeper motivation behind cleaning our teeth uh, is probably, a, you know, a, a driven by social anxiety and possibly by, uh, you know, uh, the urge to be sexy. Yeah. Uh, much more than it's actually driven by concern about plaque or gum health. Do you mind me, tell me if you want to focus on the book. I'd love to talk about, I read a piece that you, or that you were in campaign in January. And yes. you spoke about Will Lyon from BBH talking about the efficiency bubble. And kind of the sub the subline was that advertising is in a time of crisis, but not because it isn't working. I'd just love to explore some of the themes from that piece, just for a second, if that's OK. No, of course. Um, I mean, my problem is uh, that um, uh, advertising, as much of the business world, 
has uh, started to suffer. You remember I said earlier on, if you uh, adopt an approach to marketing, an approach to business, which uses Newtonian physics and the idea of a machine as the mental model. Yep. One of the things that's generally true about a machine, not by no means universally, but is, is, a, is a much safer assumption in a machine than in a complex system, mm. is that improving the individual parts improves the whole. Yes. And therefore, uh, that tends to lead to a belief that the most efficient way to advertise is therefore the most effective. And it's a hugely dangerous conflation actually, of two things. The idea that something is efficient in terms of its use of money, uh, and therefore, by assuming that it's optimally efficient, it's optimally effective, is a complete mistake. I'll give you a very simple example. Okay, The most efficient advertisement you can produce is to go into a pub and put up a sign on the wall that says, drink beer. Yep. Um, because <laughs> it will, on measure, appear to be spectacularly effective and efficient. Yeah. Because a huge number of the people who see it uh, seem to end up drinking beer. Doesn't really prove that that uh, ad was decisive in driving their behaviour. However, sure. they weren't all going to drink cider beforehand. In fact, the very fact they'd come to the pub suggested they were highly likely to drink beer in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good. And point. so the distinction between trawling for customers and creating customers. Uh, the distinction between short-term ends, which tend to be behavioural, and longer-term ends, which tend to involve uh, brand building, and the idea that there is no longer any trade-off between the two seems to have led to a fundamental mistake in in marketing. Uh, Not least the fact that, by the way, um, if you think about it, uh, the obsession with targeting and the proportion of effort even among very large advertisers mm. that has been driven towards optimizing targeting efficiency yeah. is, when you think about it, completely contrary to the Byron Sharp approach. Yeah. But it also, I think, completely fails to realize that a certain amount of the future is unknowable and unpredictable. And therefore, if you have the budget to reach everybody, there is a huge value to reaching people indiscriminately because in the odds that they might need something from your category, they will already have heard of you, and that will fundamentally change your fortunes. The need to try and predict something which is unknowable in advance is actually a false, is, is really a kind of false god. Now, here's an, interesting, here's an interesting thing which isn't in the book, but I've been talking about more and more recently, okay? The standard way in which you're supposed to do business is you say... Um, We have a strategy, which is that the purpose of our marketing is to achieve this end. Yeah. Okay? And the purpose of our marketing is to drive this metric. And therefore, we will engage in some marketing, and we will judge the efficacy of the marketing by the extent to which the metric we have identified in advance is moved by the activity. Nothing else will count towards explaining or, or justifying the marketing, only the thing that in advance we decided was the role of marketing. Now, here's the thing, right? What if a large part of the success of a B2B business is simply luck, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, and by the way, I mean, I mean this sincerely. I think that luck plays a much, much bigger role in um, the success of any commercial endeavor that any of the people involved likes to admit, particularly if that endeavor is successful. If it fails, 
Dif- different story. People are quite keen to say we were unlucky. You know, we couldn't control our timing and we launched too early. Something yeah. like that, you know. Yeah. But when they're successful, nearly all the reasons for success essentially get hoovered up by some sort of self-serving narrative. <laughs> yeah. Now, if, now, here's a question, right? If you've got teenage kids, let's say you've got a teenage son who's 17, 18, why do, why do all teenagers go out on Saturday night? And if you ask them, they'd say, because I might get lucky. Mm. And you say, no, no, you need to specify in advance what nature that luck will take. And they'll say, well, you know, I don't know that. I might, I might meet a girl. I might meet a boy. I might, I might have, meet some new friends. I might just have a great time. I might see something spectacular. What I do know is that if I stay home, I won't get lucky, Okay. And what the calculus of teenagers doing there is, one, that there is a massive asymmetric upside to making connections, okay? Mm. That you're far more likely to gain from a connection at that point in your life by exposing yourself to more people than you are basically being a recluse, right? Yeah. And that's their justification for doing it. It's not that in advance they know that if you do X, you're you're specifically more likely to obtain Y. They simply know that um, going out at night has an asymmetric upside, given their evolutionary aims at that time. Now, in the same way, being famous, if you think about it, for a business, right? Yeah. The consequences of being famous, assuming you're an honest business, right? If you're an honest and decent business, the consequences of being famous are inordinately more likely to be positive than they are to be negative. Yes. So if you're a famous brand, um, all of the following might happen which wouldn't happen if nobody's heard of you. When your chief executive calls someone asking for a favor, they return his call. Right? Yeah. Um, you, people come to you with interesting ideas in your category because they've heard of you. And when they think of your category, they think of you first, and therefore they tend to bring you the best ideas first. People will come and work for you who are highly talented for less money because they want to work for someone who's famous and because they can't work for someone that they've never heard of, right? Yeah. Um, you could add to the fact that, um, you know, interesting, you tend to get on the pitch list for things because people have heard of you, okay? Now, all of those things may be impossible to attribute to fame. Nonetheless, they are inordinately more likely to happen if you are famous than if you're not. Yeah. So there's an argument for simply advertising, which is in areas which are impossible to quantify, and in many cases, impossible to identify. It is nonetheless a safe assumption to say, if we make a lot of noise, more beneficial things are likely to happen than if we're obscure. Now, I'd love to do some searching into this, which is to say that is the reason for the disproportionate early success of Amazon, Apple, Google, okay, if you take the big five, Facebook, is it that for whatever weird reason... For a very short time in the decisive history of that category in which they operate, they just received a disproportionate amount of uh, positive press coverage. Okay. So, you know, it's perfectly possible if you trace back the reasons for their success that actually, uh, you know, in the case, I'd be very interested to know, you know, in the case of The Economist who actually worked out how to make uh, Google AdWords pay, 
you know, was that connection forged because the guy had heard of Google and therefore agreed to go and attend a conference with them? Mm. What, you know, what's going on there? But in, in, in those cases, okay, your, the effects of, of other people knowing of your existence for any business, even if those people may seem at first glance surprisingly irrelevant to the fortunes of your business, the important fact is not that you know how valuable it is. It's that you know that the, uh, in an unpredictable world, the consequences of fame are much, much more likely to lead to positive outcomes than they are to lead to negative outcomes. And so, you know, you don't ask your teenage son to say, OK, before you go on Saturday night, I want you to do a cost-benefit analysis. Right? <laughs> Get some key All performance they know indicators. is that in their decisive <laughs> teenagers, I'm 53, I want to stay home on Friday night, you know, because basically my, to be absolutely honest, the Sutherland gene pool is now at its maximum, right? <laughs> You know, I'm not planning to do any more breeding. Um, you know, I've got enough friends kind of thing. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. You know, at 53, the what you might call the variance in your possible life outcomes becomes both narrower. Uh, you know, there's a higher base and there's a lower top. Yeah. OK, I'm not going to score a winning goal for England, although given that I didn't like football, that was highly unlikely to begin with. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, uh, barring, you know, uh, uh, External disasters, you know, I'm probably going to have a job until I'm 60 if I want one, mm. barring some sort of health disaster, okay? Mm. So, in other words, the variance of my possible outcomes is lower. When you're a teenage, oh, there's everything to play for. Yeah. And so one of the things that interests me is that the very fact... Now, what you've got to remember is that people who've studied economics, people who have a finance mentality, people who have an accountancy mentality, hate advertising because they see it as inefficient. And one of the reasons they see it as inefficient is because of necessity, maybe that's its job, okay? It, the job of advertising is to pave a way for successful future outcomes which you haven't yet envisaged. Yeah. And that process is going to be inefficient because it's by nature dealing with the future, it's going to be inexact, right? It's going to be like meteorology, yeah. okay? The second thing is that what you've got to remember is those people believe that economics is true. And economic theory in order to make it look mathematically neat and in order to make it look a bit like physics, assumes several things. It assumes that human beings are utility, making utility-optimizing decisions. That's wrong. We haven't evolved to do that. We've evolved to care about low variance, not just a high average outcome. Okay? Yeah. In an atmosphere of perfect trust, not true, for none of our evolutionary history would it have been healthy to be overly trusting and in a world of perfect information. Now, if you make those three assumptions right, all of which are fucking wrong, okay, but if you think that that's how the world works, okay, then you've just created a fantasy world of perfect efficiency where marketing and advertising don't need to exist. And so anybody who takes their MBA Economics 101 as a model for how the world works, essentially will see marketing is either unnecessary or at best uh, a necessary evil of which you try to perform as little of it as possible sure. because it's a cost. Yeah. What you won't do if you see the world through that lens is see marketing as a source of value creation. Okay. Yeah, and my point about alchemy is marketing is a source of value creation because actually how much 
value people attach to your product or service is not purely a product of the objective attributes of that product or service. It's a product of how you market it, how you frame it, the story you tell about it, the narrative that sits around it, the things other people think about it, uh, and the extent to which people think that um, not necessarily that it's perfect, but that it's highly reliable. Sure. Yeah. So basically, if you believe economics, um, all those fundamental truths, never mind things like transitive preferences and, <laughs> uh, and stable preferences, all of your assumptions are wrong. Yeah. Okay? I, I mean, you know, it really is that f***ing bad. I mean, I, I really mean that. I mean, it is terrible. Yeah. Uh, so using economics as a guide to predict human behavior is essentially, for so many reasons, utterly disastrous. But the worst thing is you've created, because you're trying to pretend it's physics, you're trying to pretend you're operating in a magic-free world. Yeah. And if you don't believe in magic, you won't look for it. And also, you, you'll, you'll mis-explain it where you find it. So your attribution for the most important thing your company is doing, which is generating value out of nowhere, will typically attribute the, the creation of value to something else other than magic. Yeah. And you'll say, our company is successful because of its fantastic supply chain management or because of its marvelous cost control. Now, the effort that is put into making businesses more efficient so that you can reduce the cost would only make sense if the business world were full of great success stories which were driven by superior cost control. Yeah. Only a tiny minority of really successful companies, if that, um, can really be actually uh, explained away by cost control alone. I would argue that those low-cost companies, by the way, including, let's say, IKEA or Ryanair, yeah. that are successful as low-cost providers owe the success not exclusively to the low cost because there are people cheaper than them who fail, but the low cost combined with a brilliant narrative. You know, I, I actually think that actually, you know, we've got to say that Ryanair, uh, they, you know, in their kind of cheap and chips thing, they kind of know what they're doing. Yeah, I'd agree, yeah. Um, and, the, you know, there's a kind of – one of the things is that actually when I do fly Ryanair, which is pretty infrequently, I must admit, um, I'm generally pleasantly ex surprised by the experience because my anticipation is far the worse than the reality. Because of the expectation, yeah, I'd agree with that. And uh, so, you know, one of the great things with Ryanair is I don't expect very much, so when I do get something that's a bit nicer than I was led to expect, <laughs> I jokingly said in the book, you know, when I board yeah. the plane without being pistol-whipped by Serbian mercenaries, yeah. I tend to go, oh, that was a bit of a bonus, I didn't get pistol whip this time and um so you know that and, and ikea is very very clever because the awkwardness of the process of purchase and the eccentricities of their customer experience destigmatize the low price yeah cheaper furniture than ikea we tend to assume is cheaper because it's rubbish mm. we assume that ikea is good value because of the means in which we have go, to struggle we, we acquire it yeah and so the idea that low price alone is a route to business success is genuinely one of the most deranged and unfortunate misconceptions uh, in all business behavior. But there's kind of match about it. The guy who really understands this, shit, by the way, Peter Thiel, and his book Zero to One, great, great book. Yeah. He understands, unusually for a tech guy, he understands the value of marketing. But he also understands that there's this weird... It, it's, I mean, I really hate sporting analogies in business because mm. I go, well, the difference between business and sport is I can rewrite the fucking rules mm. in business. OK, as a marketer, I can just change the rules of the category. Right. <laughs> in sports, you're stuck with the rules. You know, you don't have a chance mid game as a golfer to lobby for a change in the rule about, <laughs> you know, twigs or leaves or something. Right. 
Yeah. Um, and so, but also that urge to compete drives people, instead of trying to create a mental monopoly, it drives them to feel macho by competing on the same dimension as everybody else within the category. Well, once you start doing that, you're already on a race to the bottom, basically. Okay, so the third section is the rocket fuel section, and this is where we ask our guests to give insights and actionable things that our audience can use in their everyday life. And what I would like to start with first, Rory, is what do you know about young audiences? Um, What we need to know about young audiences, and this is where the evolutionary psychology comes in, okay, is the idea that we've spawned a different breed of human being is fundamentally ridiculous, okay? Their motivations, deep... This is why getting to the real why, because as Bernbach said, the real whys of human behaviour don't change very much. Mm. What we're interested in should be unchanging man, because it's from unchanging man that the various drives ultimately emerge. Evolutionary biology makes a very helpful distinction between proximate reasons and ultimate reasons. The ultimate reasons, what humans are trying to do, doesn't change very much. The means by which they may seek to obtain those ultimate ends does change because that's driven by circumstance. And so, for example, it would be accurate to say, though not as accurate as people think, that young people aspire to car ownership as a status good less than they might have done 30 years ago, I think would be an accurate statement. Although it would be a statement hugely biased and exaggerated by anybody living in London, where, of course, you can get by without a car. Uh, I live just a mile outside the M25. My daughters are hugely eager to learn to drive because if you can't drive, you don't have much of a social life. Yeah. Okay, but secondly, people do care about what car they have in London. You can get away with it because nobody ever sees your car. You don't drive to work. Okay, Uh, your car isn't parked outside your house. It's typically parked 200 yards down the street because that's the nearest you could get to when you last came back from Sainsbury's two weeks ago. And also, uh, you can basically say, oh, actually, I belong to Zipcar. I mean, I'm a big fan of Uber, whatever it might be. Uh, If you live in London you know, Manhattan, you know, central Chicago, you can play that game of not having a car is cool. Uh, To be absolutely honest, if you live in Boise, Idaho, no, that hasn't changed nearly as much as people think. Absolutely. Okay, But nevertheless, depending on the circumstances in which people uh, uh, find themselves in, status currencies will change. One of the things we never talked about is that, okay, you know, it's not American graffiti. Car ownership is not the be-all and end-all of youth status that it was, you know, if you watch American Graffiti or, you know, you imagine a Californian youth in 1955. Right, OK. We can accept that's changed a bit. What possibly replaces it to an extent among certain people, though not everybody, is travel and international travel as a status good. So we're still competing for status. However, the currency of status changes because the currency of status isn't something you get to choose yourself. Sure. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. The currency of status, in order to, in order to create a currency, mm. it has to have some sort of universal liquidity and um, uh, and universal recognition. And so, one of the things I'd say, interestingly, is I ask this question because it worries me actually. Mm. Okay, because we talk a lot about social mobility, mm. right? Now, if you went to, here's an interesting question: if you went to university 
uh, let's say, age 19 now, right, would you be at a huge social disadvantage? Not because necessarily you hadn't been to the right school, the kind of things that people tend to use to explain these things. But if you went up to university and you know, most of the people at university had done three long-haul holidays, including spending a gap year in South America where they went to Machu Picchu, yeah. and the extent of your travel was that you'd been to Marbella or you'd been to Ayanapa yeah. a couple of times, would you be at a huge social disadvantage? And my contention is, yes, you would. Mm. Now, it's less visible than turning up in a milieu where loads of people have really cool cars and you, ha you have a bicycle. Mm. But it seems to me that that, you know, that has taken a larger and larger part of status currency. Likewise, other goods, by being universally affordable, televisions, what used to be the video cassette recorder, yeah. uh, you know, to some extent, mobile phones are pretty critical because they're highly portable, highly visible. Uh, my home hi-fi, my TV, my washing machine, my dishwasher, all of those things were one status goods, um, uh, highly significant uh, status goods. Whereas now they're closer to utilities. Whereas now they're closer to, um, to being kind of commodities. Mm. Yeah. I see that point that you're making, yeah. So consumer electronics, you make something because it's very, very widely popular. Now, here's my interesting conundrum, okay? Anything that's really useful, lots of people are going to want it, right? Mm. Because lots of people want it, it pays you to make that thing affordable for a very large audience. Once you've made the thing affordable for a very large audience, you've destroyed its capacity as a status indicator. Mm which means that people stop caring about it. Now, one of the things that worries me is, does status competition disproportionately end up in things which are kind of stupid <laughs> rather than in things which are kind of useful? Because the useful things, by becoming universally adopted, become uh, essentially commodities and lose any, you know, no, nobody's going to go to a nightclub and go, I've got a dishwasher at home or <laughs> I've got a flat screen TV. They might have done 25 years ago, right? <laughs> The flat screen TV thing is a real bugbear of mine because you'll often see that a flat screen TV to beat people over the head with. Oh, and they've got a flat screen TV on the wall. You can't now get a TV that isn't a flat screen TV. No, 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 absolutely right. But you have to make a considerable effort. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, my father was a very late devotee of black and white television and, uh, because, uh, and eventually gave up. He had that slight hatred of TV, mm. but he said it's impossible to buy black and white TV. In fact, it's more expensive than yes. a colour one. Yeah. And in any case, if you have a black and white TV, the, t the TV detector people assume you're lying about it. Yeah. So you get persecuted to death. <laughs> um, but also, a, a large flat screen TV, to someone who's cash constrained, is an extraordinarily logical purchase. Mm. Because it provides an inordinate amount of entertainment with a very, very low cost per hour, exactly. right? Yep. What are they supposed to be doing? Going to Glyndebourne, for <laughs> sake, you know, get real, <laughs> right? Okay? No, yep. and, and absolutely, and those things... Um, so there's a worry with me. I, 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 the thing that worries me is I, I, I asked a millennial audience, because I've had this hunch about this travel thing, that it's really driven by Darwinian um, uh, sex drive, and status-seeking, rather than travel broadens the mind. Yeah. I think it's done to show off. And the classic example of that is I had a, a, an audience of people under 30 uh, in the room, about 200-and-something people, and I asked, OK, how many of you, hands up, hands up who's been to Machu Picchu, and then followed by, hands up, how many of you have been to see Lincoln Cathedral, mm. right? And the ratio was three to one. Wait for it. It's a London audience. It was three to one in favour of Machu Picchu. 
Yeah. Now, OK, that's a majorly long-haul flight. No, it's not a long-haul flight. It's at least two long-haul flights, mm. followed by an extremely long bus drive to massively high altitude mm. where you may well suffer from hypoxia, OK, to see a pile of stones on the top of the bloody Andes, right? Yeah. OK? Now, you can get Lincoln Cathedral. I'm sorry, I'm going to make a value judgment here. It's more interesting than f***ing Machu Picchu, right, <laughs> architecturally, OK? Uh, never mind the fact that it's surrounded by the city of Lincoln, OK? Uh, it is an extraordinarily unbelievable experience in so many ways. You can get there from London on a train mm -hmm. in a day, yeah. and you get back the same day. And genuinely, the ratio was three to one. It was something like, I don't know, you know, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was it's like amazing. nine to three. Mm. Three people who... I did, I, the one exclusion was, I think there was one person who actually grew up in Lincoln. Now, that doesn't count. No, okay? sure. Because we're not hiring many people who grew up in the Andes. Mm. Um, I'd be prejudiced against them anyway because of their constant flute playing. You know, it would be a distraction. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. Okay. I realise. Uh, just, just to be very clear, right? <laughs> you know, I don't want this constant bloody flute playing. Um, uh, you know, poncho all over the bloody place. Um, anyway, no, but the, the point was that you actually had that crazy ratio. Now, the motivation is exactly the same as, you know, a 1950s Californian, you know, building some weird hot rod car. Yeah. Okay. It's status drive. The manifestations of that drive will change according to social and economic and other circumstances. So, you know, one of the interesting things is that um, one one thing that does fascinate me about the young mm. is that they are they have been subjected to. I would argue, if you're 25, you've been subjected to 25 years of pro-urban propaganda. Okay. Which oh, is basically that the that. countryside and suburbia is just full of people borrowing each other's lawnmowers interspersed with an occasional bout of dogging. Mm. Whereas city centre, big city culture is dynamic, uh, you know, vibrant, uh, diverse, ex you know, exciting, wonderful, right? I'm 41 and I sort of believe that myself. So, yeah. You, you basically believe that, don't you? Mm. Now, by the way, I'll give you some advice on that. If you, now, the only thing I do ask our young people, they go, oh, I can't afford to buy housing. It's impossible for me to buy a house. Well, that's true, in a sense, OK? The only point I make is when my father, uh, in his 20s, uh, had a flat share in London with mm. some friends, he lived in Bullstrode Street, Marlborough, OK? I lived in Bayswater in W2, which is pretty central by the standards of yeah. the day, OK? If I say to our young people, you know, you can buy a flat, uh, have a look at Orpington and Bromley, mm. they'll look at me as if I'm f***ing deranged, mm. Right? They wouldn't move to Bromley if I put a gun to their head. Mm. It has to be Shoreditch. You have to pretend you're in Brooklyn, mm. basically. It's got to be Shoreditch, Hoxton, or Peckham, mm. or one of those places, right? Now, suburbia is actually quite nice. Yeah. I mean, objectively, right? And they're exposing themselves to a whole load of grief and inconvenience, really because I suspect if you live in Bromley, you can't pull. Mm. Yeah. Right? And so... We've got to remember that some of this is driven, some of this property shortage is driven by undoubtedly market failure, the failure to build more houses. But actually, you could build, okay, you could build a massive, inexpensive uh, uh, apartment block on top of Ebb Street Station, which is 17 minutes from St Pancras, mm. and you wouldn't get anybody under 30 to move there, unless they had kids, mm. and that changes everything. Yeah. Absolutely. But you wouldn't get child, childless 24-year-olds to move there. No, I'd agree.
I'd agree. And so a little bit of it is we have to ask the question, how much of this is actually a housing problem and how much of it is a fashion problem? And, how, and what's driving those factors? Mm. Yeah, as, we, as you've discussed, that's fascinating. You, you, so you still believe, broadly speaking, that if you moved outside the M25, uh, effectively, you know, there'd be people there with straw in their mouths, uh, basically just, you know, occasionally, you know, mowing their lawn before having a sleep in the afternoon, <laughs> pretty much. So I'm not quite that far, and I think we both know we've both been a little facetious, but I genuinely, and I'm from the countryside, so I'm from a village between Henley and Reading, okay? Gotcha, yeah. And, and I'll be frank with you, Rory, and, and I didn't want to get into politics at all, but a, there's a little bit of me that worries I'll meet more Brexiteers in the Oxfordshire and Berkshire countryside than perhaps I will with an office by Spitalfields Market. Yeah, although you might argue that at least the Remainers and Brexiteers in the countryside will be comfortable telling you the truth about their voting. Now, that's very fair. <laughs> um, which is, I, I mean, London is much more Brexity. First of all, you've got to remember, OK, this is really important. Mm. I always tell people in advertising, stay up and watch the election results. Oh, yeah. Right? And I say, the reason is that when all those constituencies come in and you go, where the fuck is that? Where the fuck is Blaby, right? Yeah. You realise that in population terms, there's a hell of a lot of the country which isn't Islington, Westminster, Chelsea, you know. Oh, which completely. Isn't, and you realise that what is... What is London, by the way? Isn't London, right? OK, so during the, um, the, the referendum result... Uh, which, to give the, in the interest of disclosure, I voted Remain, but now think we should leave because democracy is more important than uh, nerdish, uh, you know, trade um, yeah. <laughs> concerns. Okay, and that we live, we should live in a democracy, not an economocracy. Yeah, you know, I don't think you should say this is what people want, but unfortunately, it would lead to a 0.5 percent uh, fall in GDP, and therefore we can't possibly enact it. Right? Yeah. Bollocks. Okay. First of all, I think a lot of people would like more leisure and would like longer. Holidays, which might lead to a you know a 1.6 percent fall in GDP if we increased everybody's holiday allowance by a week. Okay. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'd make it illegal to go on holiday if you didn't have kids. I'd make it illegal to go on holiday in the school holidays. By the way, that's I... because having kids is made largely expensive by the fact that you're forced to go on holiday at the same time as everybody else. Mm. And these bloody idiots who go on holiday in August when they haven't got children. I know. Are contributing to the problem. Those people would be jailed immediately under mm. a future Sutherland <laughs> regime. OK, but anyway, parking on that one. Mm. OK, um, uh, uh, you know, I think we should respect the result, and I'm perfectly happy. Also, it shows a remarkable lack of mental flexibility that you can't make a virtue of necessity. There are patently upsides to leaving, and there are downsides. Yeah. It is patently possible that the downsides outweigh the upsides. Nonetheless, your job as a politician is not to maximise upside. It's given the vote. It's to turn, as I said, make a virtue out of necessity. Yeah. There are extraordinarily exciting things we could do in terms of scientific research. In terms of, by the way, and Keynes wrote about this, in 1933, if you have a degree of economic self-sufficiency, obviously not complete, but if you maintain a degree of economic self-sufficiency, your freedom to experiment with the kind of polity and governance you have is much higher. Yeah. So, you know, I'd like to experiment with localism to a much greater extent, all these kind of things. That makes and sense. I, and I think, the, uh, and I think the, um, the EU was turning our political class into a kind of administrative class. You know, it was mm. a bit like being run by the kind of compliance department. Yeah. And the people who make decisions, 
should essentially have the autonomy to be held responsible for the decisions they make. Once you've got a government which said, we know we'd like to do this, but unfortunately under European rules we're not allowed to, you've got a government with an excuse for not doing lots of things. Yeah. And it takes, your, it takes your elected representatives out of the hot seat. You also argue in the book that um, there is an element uh, that Trump is more likely to get things done, that Hillary would be unable yeah, to. Yeah, no, 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 they're all in, in negotiation. It helps yeah. to be irrational. I'd also argue that, um, uh, yeah, that uh, there are certain things which economics, as, as I said, if you believe in a completely sort of economically driven world, it comes at a huge creative opportunity cost. I think one of the reasons to be optimistic about Boris, and there are reasons to be pessimistic about Boris, you know, I don't dispute that for a second, is every now and then he will take a large, decisive and unexpected decision. He might do it around housing, around infrastructure expenditure, around NHS expenditure, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the things I would predict is that he will honour the promise on the side of the bus, which virtually nobody else would have done. Mm. Okay. Everybody else would have said, no, 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 we need to spend optimum. Now, I, I accept the fact that, okay, as a society gets richer, this is one of the things we've got to be really careful of. The left, actually, are partly responsible for reducing the amount that people pay in tax. And let me tell you this, okay. Because the left's narrative is almost exclusively about what you might call misfortune hmm. or disadvantage. It's created a belief that when left-wing people tax you more, unless you belong to one of those disadvantaged categories, the money will be taken from you and given to somebody else, right? Yeah. And so we tend to frame money we pay as tax as a loss, unless we belong to one of those client uh, communities, right? Now, the truth of the matter is, as society gets richer, there is money you want spent individually, buying a flat-screen TV, highly individualist decision, right? <laughs> but there's also money you want spent collectively, like getting rid of potholes on the road. Yeah. And the ratio of that will be ever-changing. Sometimes we'll want more money to spend on ourselves, because I would argue, by the way, the tax, uh, very clearly, that we should pay less tax when we're younger and more than when we're older. The fact that the tax system doesn't acknowledge age and your stage of life is absurd. When you're 27, you need a lot of money because you don't own anything and you need to acquire possessions. When you're older, you are, uh, first of all, you make hugely higher calls on the NHS. The NHS, when you think about it, is a massive redistribution of wealth from the young and healthy to the old and decrepit. Okay? Yeah. You know, I mean, young people are, in a sense, a bargain for the NHS because they're, you know... You know, they don't have many conditions, and the ones they do tend to be, you know, non-chronic. Okay. But uh, uh, depending on who you are, the ratio of what expenditure you want spent on individual life improvement, holiday, television, etc., versus collective expenditure, health service, potholes, changes. And that ratio is never 100 naught, by the way. Okay. So the story, nobody on the left and nobody on the right has told the story that as we get richer, there are some things that are significantly life-enhancing for everybody, which involve the money being spent collectively rather than individually. So by making taxation entirely a story about redistribution and injustice, right, which is a perfectly good reason, by the way, to, to redistribute wealth and to tax people, but it's not the only reason, right? Sure. And no one's been telling the story in favour of actually, you know, if you think about it, a television 
a satellite TV is something you can basically install on your own. If you want good sewerage or you want good sanitation, that tends to be a collective problem because you need to run the pipes along the street. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, depending on whether a TV is more important to you than a toilet, than a flush toilet, whether you want your money to be spent collectively through some sort of part, partly government-enabled program or whether you want it entirely your own money to spend as you wish will depend on everything from preference to life stage to what technology is doing at the moment. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And one of my arguments, by the way, and which I wrote in The Spectator a few weeks ago, is... Um, why is it okay for government to, buy a, to build a road, but it's not okay for government to go to Zoom or Blue Jeans, if you have a preference, yeah. but to go to Zoom and say, okay, we want to open 60 million Zoom accounts and we'll pay you, let's say, you know, one pound per month per person. Mm. Probably. Uh, to be honest, I think it would cost a lot less than that, yeah. interestingly. But, I mean, you know, my argument is very simply that it's not inconceivable that if it's worth building a second runway, it's worth making video conferencing better. I completely get you, yeah. And so digital public goods is an area of exploration where, other than my mate Nicholas Gruen, who's a brilliant Australian economist, well, brilliant in my opinion, I think he's really interesting, mm. who makes the point, you know, what's the economic value of Wikipedia? The first thing I'd do if you made me Prime Minister, by the way, is I'd get the UK government to give £50 million a year to Wikipedia. Really. As a kind of gesture yeah. to people who are thinking of coming up with something themselves, yeah. right? Now, there's no benefit to giving 50 million a year to Wikipedia uh, except uh, a moral justification. Mm. But the reason I give 50 million a year to Wikipedia, or maybe even more, is because A, it is patently worth that, mm. right? The existence of Wikipedia, I mean, the consumer surplus I gain, I would pay a couple of hundred quid uh, a year to have Wikipedia without a shadow of doubt. Um, the value in terms of the speed at which people can become reasonably knowledgeable in a category mm. in a very short time is miraculous. Okay. Do, can I ask a question, Rory? Do you but pay just, any just money? Just to make clear, no, the reason on. I give the money to Wikipedia is it would encourage other people to do the same thing in the expectation of the same reward. I realise. Yeah. I can, yeah. So it'll encourage innovation. It'll encourage people to de develop. Can, do you, as an individual, give money to Wikipedia? Yes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I give three pounds a month, which isn't enough. Mm. But um, my argument is, well, you know, I, I think that um, uh, if you, I mean, some people presumably don't use it. If you're weirdly incurious, maybe you never go there. Uh, <laughs> but it's probably, if you think about it, uh, it's equivalent to giving a free set of Encyclopedia Britannica times ten, yeah, with added searchability and li and hyperlinks. Okay, uh, I mean, you know, literally, uh, actually, the really weird question is, I'd almost buy a printed leather-bound copy of Wikipedia just for the weird, <laughs> uh, just for the weird absurdity of it all. Yeah. But it's equivalent to giving that to every single household. Now, if we've got a government education budget, why on earth is Wikipedia not receiving money? Mm. No, it's a great argument. It um, also says to people like uh, Mr. Welsh, you know, if you come up with future ideas like this, which essentially work miraculously through, um, uh, you know, non-standard market mechanisms, you can expect to end up pretty rich, which I think is right. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, if you think about it, the people who came up with penicillin got nothing. Right? Mm. I actually met the daughter of Rose Heatley once. Really? And if you remember, it was Florrie Chain. Mm. 
Uh, I suppose you had Fleming, Florian Chain, and Heatley was the third part of the team who actually worked out how to make it. And they didn't patent it because they thought the idea of patenting a life-saving drug was essentially unethical. Mm. Now, again, there, someone should have gone and said, OK, here's your 20 million quid. Mm. Um, because... Um, there are a lot of people, you know, I mean, Berners-Lee, you know, what should Berners-Lee be worth? Now, you know, OK, to be honest, it makes very little difference to your quality of your life, whether you're worth 20 million or 200 yeah. um, uh, in in uh, what you might call instrumental utility. But I think, you know, as um, you know, we can't promise to make those people as rich as the Google founders. That would be unfeasible. But I think you should actually, you know, by the way, an 18th century government would have done something like this. You know, it did it to military leaders, It, you know, the Duke of Marlborough or whatever. We should do that to digital leaders who haven't actually made a lot of money but have been hugely valuable. We should occasionally make those payments pour encourager les autres. From the government, from a government fund, that yeah, would be yeah, your yeah, contention. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's a brilliant incentive scheme mm. giving the Duke of Marlborough, Blenheim Palace, and a whole load of bling mm. because other generals, uh, you know... Will then, be- will yeah, then behave... Will then try and... a little bit harder. Yeah, yeah. Right, Rory, to conclude, if that's all right, I want to ask, first of all, Rory, where where would you like people to find out more about you? Um, Twitter, uh, at Rory Sutherland, I'm, uh, again, I'm a huge Twitter fan because I think the value of its serendipity, and the value to me, by the way, of Twitter uh, is that I've been able to get in touch with and talk to people in fields of related interest both academia. So, you know, I could occasionally ask a question of a Nobel Prize winning economist. Yeah. OK. Uh, on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, you know, okay, you know, and equally, uh, I've been in contact with first rate evolutionary biologists and I get some of the for good and ill, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, of uh, the uh, major academic uh, feuds, for instance but also uh, the revelation of the latest research in a way which is extraordinarily valuable. So at Rory Sutherland Twitter, I'm basically, I'm not a Twitter-onlyist, I am on Facebook. Um, uh, You know, I might occasionally post on Instagram, but basically uh, I'm uh, I'm mostly on Twitter for uh, both professional and reasons of convenience generally. Um, and and, And read the book. Sure. Um, or listen to the book. I narrate the audio book, um, not, not entirely out of egotistical, um, uh, for, for reasons of ego. Uh, I discovered that when you narrate an audio book, if you are not the narrator of your own book, the entire focus of the narration of an audio book is fidelity to the original text. And my view has always been, look, we don't speak exactly the same way we write. We should maybe aspire to write very much as we speak. But, you know, patently there are sentences you write which you wouldn't read out loud. So the freedom to narrate your own audio book meant I could effectively improvise and ad lib and change the structure of sentences so that they were more comfortable when being listened to, which I thought was a worthwhile thing to do. Perfect. I think that's everything, Rory. I'm deliriously happy. I'm going to try and come to Nudstock in uh, June. It'll I've never the done second, it. The Nudstock will be the second weekend in June, the second Friday in June in 2020. Yeah. And uh, so block that in your diary now. And we'll, we, uh, without any promises, we hope to have, uh, as good as 2019, a feast of 
uh, behavioural scientists. Uh, there are a few we've yet to get. Jonathan Haidt is on the wish list. Dan Ariely is patently on the wish list. Uh, we had Gerd Gigerenzer this year, which satisfied a long-term dream of mine. Mm. Uh, read his work as well. Don't just read me for crying out loud. Um, <laughs> you know, but um, uh, you know, read uh, The Mating Mind by Jeffrey Miller. Read um, The Darwin Economy by... Um, uh, he's on Twitter as Econ Naturalist. Um, uh, 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 Robert H. Frank at Cornell. Uh, but they're fantastic ways. Read books which essentially, if a book, I think, just allows you to see the world in more than one way, that's mm. the real value. And there's a great quote by someone who's actually a web designer um, whose name I've briefly forgotten, where he said that a change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing we need to be encouraging in education much more. Not that business of this is the right way of looking at things, everything else is wrong. And there's another quote which either you use or it may be even your own, Rory, which is the best books about advertising are not about advertising. Is, have I bastardised uh, that? The source of that is Jeremy Bullmore. Ah, there we are. First. Yes. And that, that, that informed my writing of the book mm. because I wanted to write a book which was useful to people in advertising but was not exclusively or explicitly just about advertising. And thus concludes another Rocket Fuel interview podcast. Thanks so much for listening, particularly all the way to the end. It shows you've got stamina. I really enjoyed that chat. Um, There are many more that we've had, many more still to come. If you've got great ideas for guests or you just wish we'd ask different questions, then get in touch. We're really keen to take on board your feedback. In the meantime, give us a five-star review. Do share this podcast with someone who you think would really like it. And tune in next week. Thank you for listening. This is a Rocket Audio production.